Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We are still in election week. We are still digesting the results. We're still waiting on some results in New York and across the country. We still don't know which party is going to have the majority in either House of Congress. Uh, and there is a lot up in the air after an election where across the country, Democrats had a far better election than expected, but in New York had a bit of a worse election than expected. And we're going to get into that some more here today. We're speaking on Friday, November 11th, 2022. So just a few days after election day, and there's still a lot to discuss as Governor Kathy Hochul won her election, but by a five to six point margin here, far tighter than the several preceding elections that Democrats have won over the last 20 years in New York State, and Democrats in New York losing several competitive House seats that will potentially lead to a Republican takeover of the House. In New York also, some losses for Democrats in certain state legislative seats, but also some victories in other places, and that picture is a bit complicated. So that's just a little snapshot. Joining me now to discuss some of those outcomes and a number of political dynamics that took place here in New York is Alexis Grinnell, a Democratic strategist, co-founder of Pythia Public, and a columnist at The Nation. She's been writing about gender and politics for a decade, and I'm very pleased to have a chance to speak with her. Alexis, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ben. Great to talk to you. So big picture here, uh, we come out of election day in New York. Let's let's focus in on New York, where we both are, are based and focused. Um, what, what were you thinking about as we saw the results on Tuesday night? As I said, Governor Hochul, a massive historic accomplishment, first woman elected governor in New York. She only had been in the position a little over a year, uh, but a, a far more narrow margin than lots of other uh, Democratic nominees in the last several election cycles before her, some big house losses in New York, uh, Long Island, a wipeout basically almost for Democrats, a, a bit of a mixed picture, but certainly a good night for Republicans in New York. But you have the history-making win by Governor Hochul. What were some of the biggest things you were thinking about uh, as the results came in Tuesday night, your big takeaways? Well, I, I think that the abject failure of the state and local parties to deliver a significant margin to this for this governor is really you can't you can't overlook it. We have a, a party in shambles where the chairman of the party believes, you know, his job is basically to raise money and uh, punch left. And uh, <laughs> it doesn't really it doesn't really function. And that I think was on clear display. You know, I'm a triple prime Democratic voter in Brooklyn, and I didn't receive a piece of mail, a phone call, a text, um, an email from the local Democratic Party in Brooklyn or the state party telling me there was even an election. Mm -hmm. And I received multiple texts, phone calls, uh, sightings on the street from the Working Families Party, which made up about 4.6% of Hochul's victory, which is nearly her entire margin. So, but for the Working Families Party, uh, I do not feel confident at all that we would be in this position today. 
that is um, unimpeachable. And the fact that the chairman and the governor don't seem to consider that um, a problem tells you everything you need to know. I would really hope that for the governor's sake, she uh, looks at the data and gets it together to get rid of this guy because we're not being served. There's certain problems that you can absolutely blame on the sort of redistricting fiasco, uh, which of course dates back to the Andrew Cuomo's reign of terror. Um, but you can't blame it on the maps either. There was a lack of an operation. There was a lack of just basic GOTV even. Mm. Not even I'm not even critiquing the campaigns for not being creative or innovative. They just weren't doing the basics. Mm. And, and that's frankly political malpractice. And like I said, but for the Working Families Party, I'm not sure we would be here today mm. talking about Governor Hochul. Yeah. How how much is it the, the Hochul campaign? How much is it the state Democratic Party? Should it matter, you know, that they they, they both should be doing uh, things in concert and neither was really doing certain things that you're talking about? The governor raised an insane amount of money, roughly $50 million in basically 14 months, seems to have spent a huge amount of it on TV ads. Um how much is how much is the Hochul campaign? How much is the state party? Does it not really matter? I, I mean, I, I think that this governor is actually one of your classic public servants in the even the Jesuit tradition, which is something I particularly enjoy listening to her and her rhetoric. She makes certain references, which are are so interesting to follow, but that's a whole different conversation. Um, she's a good public servant. And she actually cares more about building a uh, functioning government and governance itself than on the sort of um, sort of modern precepts of of 21st century campaigns, which rely on a big personality and a lot of, uh, frankly, chest pounding, which I, I don't think that's the only mold or model, but it's one in which you, you know, Mario Cuomo famously said you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. Well, you got to get to the poetry. So I, I do think that the essential workmanlike nature of this governor, which is a fabulous quality in a governor, is not serving her particularly well on the campaign side or translating there. And whatever strategy she had advising her, which put her up on TV early, uh, which also, by the way, boosted the name recognition of her opponent early, which wasn't a, such a great idea, frankly, um, they had her retreat for most of the rest the rest of the campaign season and kind of come out of the 11th hour it's just malpractice um i think so that's so interesting just for a second to jump in on that because it's so interesting because you hear the governor speak and she talks about loving being out on the on the trail she loves being around people she's a very good retail politician as far as i can tell um she she doesn't shy away from you know, there, there was there was stuff about Andrew Cuomo. This is not uh, unique to him because there's plenty of politicians like this. But, you know, he didn't want to be in a lot of uncontrolled environments. He didn't really want to take criticism, you know, as, as tough as he sort of tried to come across. He was also extremely sensitive um, where she's not like that. I think she can really take a lot of incoming and, and be in some of those perhaps uncomfortable positions where you're a sitting governor, you're out on the campaign trail. Who knows what could happen? Yeah, I think she sort of has a philosophy of like, let's get out there and, and, you know, Rose, yeah, Rose really, Garden. Yeah. But that didn't happen. Really she was, I mean, yeah. I agree actually, Kathy Hochul is actually also a talented politician, mm-hmm. um, but they didn't seem to make much use of her talents. She wasn't on, 
you know, like MSNBC until the 11th hour of the campaign. MSNBC is where liberals live. It is an easy thing to get on primetime television as the governor of New York to talk about what your campaign is about, to talk about what your administration is about, and to frame your opponent. It's, it's, this is what I mean by malpractice. She Mm -hmm. is talented, actually. But I think, Again, I, I don't know if it's her strategist or of her, but this idea of running a sort of under the radar campaign and that people would just naturally appreciate her is fundamentally um, <laughs> ahistoric based on what we know about what it takes to win campaigns. It's not going to work. And Zeldin, as absolutely crazy as a fox as he is and was, was campaigning to the max. Yeah. That- I mean, you talk about Hochul not being on NBC, MSNBC, Zeldin was on Fox News. Right. Constantly. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is what I mean by malpractice. It's it's literally free media. Mm-hmm. You can get on as governor of New York TV any day of the week. And that's not to mention that he legitimately crisscrossed the state multiple times of the course of his campaign. He was campaigning basically all out through a primary as well. That was interesting. And I think there's some interesting um, analysis to do there about whether the Republican primary was actually helpful to them counter to how they usually try to approach things. But uh, I don't know if we want to get into that now. But in terms of the governors, so, so there's major questions you're getting at about how she and her campaign campaign, the lack of a state Democratic Party uh, infrastructure effort, get out the vote, uh, mail, other messaging, lots of structural and uh, and strategy questions there. In terms of the messaging, what did you make of how um, the governor and her campaign messaged this election? There was a lot of focus, obviously, on reproductive rights, there was focus on uh, Zeldin as an extremist. You make a really interesting point about them attacking him early, helping build maybe some of his name recognition. That's a really interesting point. What would you, what'd you think about their messaging and how they did or didn't focus on the right issues or have a vision or whatever I, else you might be thinking? I don't think they articulated a vision, an affirmative vision for the candidate. They articulated why Zeldin was a non-option and that was correct, but they never framed her affirmatively. And, and it's not, here's the problem. Yes, she talked about the administration's accomplishments. Yes, she talked about what her values are. That is different than saying, this is what my vision is for New York State. This is where we should be going as a party, as a people, as as citizens. And and like that's, I don't know why I didn't see the governor of New York giving a big rally in Washington Square Park um, with Planned Parenthood and NARAL and unions talking about who we are and what we stand for. That's again, basic. That's not innovative. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, I'm not coming up with some creative idea here. Right. These are basic things. She didn't do that. And as a result, you have this guy running rallies, getting attention, going on the offense, and they let him gain all this ground, thinking that he was some like radical who would just disappear into the background, which, you know, on he got trounced on election day. That's true. But he didn't he got way too much oxygen. And she never she never had to let him do that. Mm. This five point margin is. I'm grateful for, but it's nothing to feel proud about. And and to your question about what's the difference between the campaign and the party's responsibilities, the campaign should have been spending that massive amount of money, frankly, a huge portion of that on grassroots and GOTV. Um, But it's the party apparatus that's supposed to communicate also to voters that there is an election and that they have they have a Democrat to vote for. Just a very we have a massive enrollment advantage in New York State. 
just simply telling Democrats that there's an election that they need to show up for is actually just baseline function of the party. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the 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 question here that you're getting at, you know, a number of Democrats calling for Jay Jacobs, the state party chair to go, Governor Hochul, at least initially saying she thought he did a good job uh, and and that she has no plans to to replace him. A fairly remarkable vote of confidence coming out of an election that saw her narrowly win and saw a variety of these losses, including in Jay Jacobs' own backyard of Long Island. We'll get to Long Island in a minute. In terms of that messaging, you hit on something that was striking to me this entire campaign, which is I don't think Governor Hochul offered one new idea or one uh, sort of promise of of an aspect of her vision that was something we hadn't heard before. I don't know if 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 that speaks to you as as problematic. I, I it seems like there's this this thinking in in New York government that comes from the way Governor Cuomo did things and and Governor Hochul as his former lieutenant governor maybe um you know subscribes to some of the same thinking but it's almost like well you have to wait for my state of the state to know my agenda it's like wait you have to win an election first to get right. a state of the state and to get an executive budget next year and i was just shocked that she didn't offer one new idea one big promise again i don't know what it what might it be was, it was dramatically it was it was a it was like weirdly out of touch. You have a real opportunity. She, I mean, you say she talked about abortion. Yeah, she talked about abortion. She did some stuff on abortion that was majorly important. And then it was sort of like next topic, moving on to whatever else. You know, there are things you can beat. There are points you can make consistently and offer more of a vision. I, I just, I'm, I'm aside myself because there are so many good issues out there. She didn't tackle most of them. It was a pretty lazy lackadaisical campaign. And it's sort of a disappointment considering that um, she's a good, she's a, she's not a bad governor. She's actually a good governor. And she did a lot in her first, you know, year in office. She 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 got a lot done. Um, yeah, and, and I don't she, know that she went around talking that much about what she had gotten done, and then, as we're saying, what she would do in the future. Right, and and why not? <laughs> so there, there were two two abortion, obviously immense issue coming out of the Supreme Court's decision on Roe. Um, then two two other really big issues. There, there's of course the democracy issue, Zeldin voting to overturn the 2020 election in Congress, another big one. But then two two big issues of crime and public safety, and then inflation, cost of living, economy, you know, that bucket. And it seemed like on those two latter issues, um, Zeldin just sort of owned it with with mostly with sort of criticism and negative messaging about, you know, you're not safe and it's the governor's fault and it's Democrats' fault and cost of living is too high. It's Democrats' fault. He didn't really have much by way of plans on either. And maybe some voters saw through that. But um, on those two issues, what do you think um, the Hochul campaign should have done differently? Is it going more on the offensive on the public safety issue that he was dominating? Is it pointing out even more that he's, you know, anti-gun control. She tried to do a little bit of that, but not necessarily in a consistent way. Anything on those two big buckets that you saw or didn't see from, from the campaign? You know, there's so many, there's so, so many places, frankly, where Democrats can speak positively, affirmatively, and progressively actually about crime and the economy. And it really kills me to see them miss those opportunities. Like you made the point about gun control, right? Gun, 
you know, in the 90s, when we passed the Brady Bill, law enforcement was a big part of that. Bill Bratton, the former New York police commissioner, famously out front saying, like, I, I need we need these laws to protect yeah. law enforcement. There is an entire apparatus to activate around that argument that actually being pro-gun control is being pro-law enforcement. And it's cops who get killed because we want guns, you know, concealed carry laws out the window and people being able to kind of pack heat in the subway. You know, There's so many, frankly, ways to call. It's like, I don't know why we don't do that. Um, I, I know I'm, I'm rambling a little bit on this topic, but the same goes for the economy. And to, to like, for instance, Bernie's credit, right? Bernie Sanders gets out in there and says like, inflation is 11% in the UK. It's like 10% in France. Is Joe Biden re- responsible about that? No. Corporations making massive pri- pros- profits, driving up prices and gouging consumers. That's who's responsible for this. And I'm not going to take it anymore because that's the reason your internet bill is so high. That's the reason your heat, home heating costs are through the roof. And it's, I'm going to stand with people, not with big companies. And that's what my opponent's about. And you know what? Pat Ryan in the Hudson Valley ran on abortion. He ran on anti-corporate monopolies. He ran on democracy. He ran on all that as a Democrat. Affirmative strong. When we bother to show up and make the case to people, we succeed. Yeah, he's the Pat Ryan, the only basically the only Democrat in, in the in the in the suburban areas of Long Island and the Hudson Valley to win uh, win a competitive congressional race here. Um, he competed. Yeah, yeah. What what role did gender play in this gubernatorial race? Um, obviously, as I said at the beginning. Uh, first woman to be governor and then to win a gubernatorial election puts gender front and center in some way in the election. Um, what was your perspective on how it it was playing out in seen and unseen ways? I mean, so gender is absolutely always a factor. And for men too, by the way, we don't talk about it when we talk about male candidates, but gender is always being communicated subtly or overtly. And we tend to talk about it more when it comes to women, because it's still um, sort of uh, an apparition to see women in uh, authority positions, particularly executive authority. Kathy Hochul is actually the only the 46th governor, female governor in the United States ever in our entire history. Um, we have a history of electing women to collaborative bodies like legislatures because it's in line with female coded attributes about communication, um, community, working together. But executive authority is something still reserved for um, our male coded notions of leadership, aggressive, decisive, um, you know, our almost prototypical notion of Andrew Cuomo on a windbreaker pulling a stranded driver out of his car with his own bare hands versus Kathy Hochul, you know, in the weather center delegating to the most um, qualified person in charge who just happens to be Kathy Garcia. So there's a really different notion we have socially about power when it comes to men and women. That is absolutely a factor in how voters evaluate candidates. And we see that actually, there was a really interesting study that came out a few years ago out of Villanova that showed that a a, a woman had an an even shot of beating a male candidate in a head-to-head if she was more qualified than him. So you're like average schmo has a level of plausibility, starts with a level of plausibility that a woman needs to basically have more qualifications to overcome. 
So I think, you know, in, in the case of Zeldin, that's absolutely the case. Kathy Hochul's qualified. She's highly qualified. Zeldin was like a clown who was running a clown show. And, you know, he had a level of plausibility as a candidate that she had to kind of uh, convince voters of. That said, I I don't think gender is a prime factor here when it comes to analyzing the data. That's really a failure of certain technical elements of the, this campaign, starting with just the basics of voter communication. And, you know, as we've been discussing, a, a rose garden strategy that was entirely unnecessary and did not serve her well. Do you think that... Um... Do you think that some of the results in the suburbs and the way that um, now 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 Democratic candidates that were mostly men lost a lot of these races on the Democratic side, right. but um, but the way that and we'll get to Sean Patrick Maloney, the D triple C chair in a minute, who you've recently written about at the Nation. Um, he lost his seat, obviously, in the Hudson Valley. Uh, but he he talked about how the governor the top of the ticket performance was a drag on these swing districts. Um, obviously, what do you what do you think about that argument? And and as part of that, do you think that a lot of suburban voters there was a, a gendered issue at play here, especially when Zeldin was was getting up and screaming at rallies and talking about crime and driving the you know the public safety narrative in in such a sort of stereotypical way that you're you're talking about here. Do you see any of that at play in in some of those areas? I think those are certainly issues that code generally male. Um, and we, we've seen this historically in polling about how um, voters, um, who voters view as more qualified to handle issues about national security, about public safety. That generally works in breaks in Republicans' favor, and it breaks in the favor of men over women. But that really doesn't is not sufficient to explain um, the performance in the suburbs and parts of upstate where, again, Zeldin showed up. You know, Hochul, Hochul could have, like I said, I don't know why she wasn't having rallies in Washington Square Park, in New Paltz, in Newburgh, in, yeah. you know, in Ithaca, you know, places that are, and, and those are Democratic strongholds, but, you know, you could be doing them in Buffalo, big rallying or like, you know, opportunities to bring voters out to communicate a message and to frankly push back on Zeldin's. This is a, you know, a carnival barker over here. And I'm not going to let you guys be deceived. Your state is safe. New York, this city here ranks, you know, top 15 in the nation. Don't believe these lies. And here's what I'm doing to keep you safe. I, you know, I, I think you're getting at something there that I was about to add, which is also, you know, when you go to places, you then get local news coverage, right? I mean, you, you know, this better than, than me, you know, but it's, you know, you get, you get the boost from the rally, you get the secondary boost from the, from the local news coverage, and you're getting those headlines in the, in the local papers of like, you know, Hochul comes to town and, you know, calls Zeldin a liar for, for stoking fear or whatever it might be. I also thought she, she, focused her Long Island efforts on some 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 gubernatorial announcements, almost, you know, what everybody in office does, you use the sort of powers of the office to to help you electioneer. But that other than that, she sort of left Long Island, basically just, you know, she she sort of conceded it to him. And I was shocked by that. I mean, she definitely had some government and a couple of political events there. But even if 
it looked like a re- really bad territory for her, I was really struck by how much she sort of just ceded it to him and why she wasn't going to Long Island to at least punch back. Or ceded um, places like Dutchess County, which Zeldin won by three points. How is Dutchess County? What? Other than going everywhere, which he clearly did, and other than having a very um, consistent message, which he obviously did, do you think the Zeldin campaign did anything particularly well here that helped him? I mean, we're talking a lot about what the Hochul campaign, the state Democratic Party didn't do well. And it makes a lot of sense because in a very Democratic state where the last few gubernatorial elections have been well over double digit wins for the Democrat, it makes a lot of sense to say sort of like, well, what did this this set of Democrats do wrong here. On the other side, did they do anything particularly well beyond that message discipline? And I mean, maybe he was even too disciplined on message because he wasn't offering much more beyond a couple of issues. But um, I, I, he, I, I, don't, yeah. I don't think it was a particularly innovative campaign. I thought it was a crap campaign, but here's what he did well. To be a Republican running for governor of New York, you're seen as a lost cause. So what he clearly succeeded at, frankly, was being was positioning himself with the national with national Republicans and certainly with one in particular, Ron Lauder, right here in New York City, who's uh, a the eleven million dollar man who gave I would uh, not only legit money but legitimacy. Anyway, the point is, I think he he positioned himself successfully enough with national Republicans to be seen as serious and legitimate, and therefore. Um, you know, worth investing resources in, not just financially, but sending up DeSantis and Youngkin stars of the National Party to come stump for him. It made him seem like a real threat. And that's to his credit. I don't think it earned him much in the way of actual votes, but it made him seem not like a joke. Mm-hmm. Not like Curtis Lewa running for mayor of New York City. And, you know, no national Republicans got behind him. Right, right, right. Right. There was a he he they created and and somewhat with the use of aggressive campaigning, again, a very long campaign, very aggressive campaign, and um, you know, some national trends and something of a echo chamber. Uh they they created uh some plausibility that then was reinforced by by some polling. And as you know, we've been getting at some of the uh weaknesses of the state and, and Hoko campaigns. Um in the in the end. New York City um, didn't come out like in 2018, but came out in higher numbers than in uh, 2014 and seems to, as you got at with help from the Working Families Party, certainly putting out a big GOTV effort in part to also save the Working Families Party ballot line again. Um, but, But New York City came out to a degree that you know, you could look at it different ways, but help provide the margin of victory for Hochul. Um, but at the same time, there was clearly a break among independents towards Republicans here. What do you think that came down to? Are there issues where Democrats now need to be thinking very hard, where there's a huge two to one statewide Democrat to Republican enrollment advantage? Independents in New York state now outnumber Republicans if if a lot of independents are breaking towards Republicans, that that could be a, a problem for Democrats going forward, especially in the suburbs. What do you make of, of, of that and what Democrats need to do to sort of recapture some of that? 
Sure. Well, I mean, some of that is, you know, New York Republicans disgusted with Trumpism, who've unenrolled in the in the Republican Party, mm. like, uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly, who's uh, not the Fox News Bill O'Reilly, right. but the uh, columnist at Newsday, who's also a Republican consultant, who advised Michael Lawler's campaign in Congressional District 17. You know, he wrote a column famously denouncing Trumpism and enrolling as a liberal and, you know, becoming a libertarian officially. So just, you know, I think to some extent there's there's a certain amount of that going on. Those are people who are inclined to vote Republican to begin with. So, you know, we tend to mythologize independent voters on the Democratic side and overly fixate on them sometimes. Um, because we have a significant enrollment advantage, uh, yes, we need to talk to independents as well, but it, it not to the exclusion of making an affirmative Democratic argument for leadership and for our ideas and principles. That's what's really lacking here. It's like this kind of, we ran away from the fact that, you know, this is the party that brought you Medicare and Social Security. I don't see any Republicans burning their Medicare cards or burning their Social Security cards. And, you know, like, somehow we don't want to talk about the fact that this this is the birthplace of Franklin Roosevelt, who was the, you know, hero of the 20th century. And the, and the, the, the sort of founder of our, our values, or even bring it into the latter 20th century, Mario Cuomo, who was someone who was both moral and campaigned on an affirmative agenda for a better, vi- for a, a city, a shining city on a hill. Like, basics. <laughs> yeah. Um, whether it's whether it's some of those independents or also um, some of the losses that seem to be part of the Democratic Party moving um, to Republicans in New York City. You have some vo- some white voters, some Asian voters, some Latino voters clearly moving away from Democrats toward Republicans. You could say maybe short-term trend related to some you know major major factors like, spikes in hate crimes against certain groups uh yes. a few a few different things you could point to but right what do you make of that and are there things that democrats really need to be thinking about you know you ask uh, mayor adams you know he quickly says crime 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 it's you know it's about people not not being and feeling safe there's clearly something to that but um but it right. seems like it's got to be more than that i mean there's education issues at play for for various communities other issues right. do you think it's again, just comes back to this idea of making more of an affirmative case and and defending the policies that are in place, or are there other things that are that are at play here? Well, I think, you know, I, I'm Grace Meng, who, you know, I thought tweeted something very um, relevant yesterday to touching on those, on those very points. And I'm just pulling it up in which she, you know, basically said, The WFP and allies made a massive push for Hochul and Delgado in the end. We do need them to work on more effective framing uh, around progressive issues we care about, like public safety, education, et cetera. And then she said that the Dems and Hochul could have done more beyond TV ads to promote the election. But more, you know, this is an Asian American congresswoman from Queens talking about public safety, naming specifically public safety and education as issues where we need to do better in terms of messaging from a progressive frame. And she's right about that. Um, This is a frustration I saw echoed, you know, later in the day by Jessica Ramos. Um, essentially saying that people are dealing with crime and a cash crunch and we're not listening. We don't win by running away from issues voters care about. Tuesday was proof of that. The fact is, 
<laughs> we and I, I count myself on on the left. We don't do a great job talking about public safety. We talk about long term solutions, root causes, and we don't acknowledge people's basic immediate need for short term solutions as well. And crime is emotional. Um, and if we're going to tell people that they're wrong and we simply disagree with them, we're going to lose them. Education, it's slightly more uh, nuanced, but particularly with Asian voters who um, ha have been trending more right, particularly on issues of crime as small business owners um, and just people who are the subjects of and targets of hate crimes and a community that happens to care a lot about education. Um, when we don't speak to those things directly and effectively, um, we, we can't expect to keep those voters. When they tell us what their needs and concerns are and we tell them what, that they sh shouldn't be so concerned about those things and here are our solutions, but our solutions don't actually make sense, that's a moment for real reflection and something I've actually wanted to look a lot at. What I'm saying is when you see top flight progressives like Congresswoman Grace Meng, State Senator Jessica Ramos, both being unafraid to identify weaknesses in progressive messaging around issues like crime and public safety and education. It's an opportunity actually to reflect on the fact that what we often think of and our, our impulses as people who uh, care a lot about these issues and certainly public officials who know a lot about them is to try to dismiss some of these concerns to disagree with them because they're so familiar with the literature or the research or the data, rather than try to reach people, they try to correct them. And when you look at Scandinavian countries that we often idealize for their great social safety net policies, uh, housing for everyone, healthcare for everyone, education, et cetera, even under the best conditions that we're always looking to as progressives around the, you know, to, 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 to solve the root causes of crime, Left candidates, leftist candidates in those countries still talk about crime. They still message on public safety because you have to talk to people about their lived reality. Um, and we do it very badly here. Um, it's become parody, frankly. Uh, I, you know, I remember seeing a statement after the Sunset Park shooting. It was absolutely horrible. And it was a joint statement between I want I, you know, a, a local councilwoman and a local assemblyman woman talking about the need for um uh compassion, empathy, all these good things, and never once saying that the person who perpetrated these crimes needs to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. it, it, was, it was not even part of what was a, like a multi-paragraph statement. And it starts to seem a little out of touch. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would add, I don't, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I would just add that, you know, for a, for a more moderate governor, uh, Governor Hochul also just sort of completely, this was, this was part of the, the, problems with the campaign from from where I was sitting was just completely sort of missed the opportunity to actually talk about the things that she's done on public safety because it was a it was a good bit of, of things and she let um she just let Zeldin dominate that area in such a way that uh you know that that it was clearly you know he 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 anybody who was most concerned about that I think you know he he pretty clearly was going to win those voters over unless they were sort of on the on the progressive left. Um, so uh, in conclusion, Alexis, I, I wanted to take a, a moment because you wrote something in the nation about Sean Patrick Maloney, uh, who has now lost his seat in Congress. He was, he's been the chair of the democratic congressional campaign committee overall across the country. Uh, Democrats had a, a good night in the house, uh, have an outside shot at actually keeping a narrow majority 
Um, but New York was a very bad uh, state for, for Democrats in the House. And, and the, the flip seats in New York could wind up costing Democrats that majority that, that again, nobody thought they would they would have a shot at, but still, and his seat among those. But you wrote you wrote in the nation basically that he didn't deserve to, to win his own reelection and that he's basically operated from a place of, of selfishness as an elected official. Um, do you want to just say a little bit more about your perspective on that? Sure. Well, Maloney's whole pitch for why he should be D-Trip's chairman was that he himself was a Republican slayer from a swing district, and that qualified him uniquely to protect the, the House majority, except it was always a misnomer. He was not some magic man. He strategically endorsed Republicans and he strategically endorsed, I'm sorry, I'm, there's just Ben. No worries. He strategically endorsed Republicans and worked overtime, frankly, to kill viable Democrats to protect himself. Um, and he claimed that he never had the luxury of people in safe blue districts because he was someone uh, who had to appeal to both sides of the aisle. And that's why he had to vote against Obamacare, which he was one of only two Democrats to do in the entire House. And he had to vote to weaken Dodd-Frank, which he did three times with a shrinking number of Democrats among them. It really was a failure of imagination, I have to argue. He was concerned about himself, protecting himself like he always has been. He alienated people locally, uh, I think, who were pretty sick of it. And when he run, ran Mondaire Jones out of town, um, who probably could have won re-election if he'd been allowed to stay and fight and not have to take on his own chairman, or frankly, if he had just stayed and took him on, like Alessandra Biaggi stepped up to do. She had the sort of uh, strength of character to say, I'm not going to stand for this and I don't care what it costs me. And to her credit, you know, <laughs> did what Jones wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was always about him personally. He ran for AG and Congress at the same time, over to, like defying state law that says you can't run for two offices at once, which is also, by the way, a pretty uh, insulting thing to do to your constituents to say, hey, my first choice is this other job, but if I don't get it, you guys are my backup, which is what happened. And so I think he ran a shoddy campaign. Uh, he's been a pretty shoddy character to, um, hasn't built power for anyone else locally and always put himself first. You don't have to be selfish to be a Democrat in a swing district. And this goes back to my original point, which is if Democrats build power, build an argument, build a party, um, if they are people that connect with their districts, like Pat Ryan, who just won a swing district, Biden eight and a half, plus, plus Biden eight and a half, they can succeed. Maloney wasn't so much interested in doing that because he was mostly interested in looking out for number one. Well, we are going to leave it there with uh, some provocative thoughts from Alexis Grinnell. You can find her column at The Nation along with her other writing there and other places as well. Alexis Grinnell is a Democratic strategist, co-founder of Pythia Public, and a columnist at The Nation, as I said, who's been writing about gender and politics for a decade. Alexis, thanks very much for taking some time, and we'll talk more soon. Thank you, Ben. 